to K-Pop Bookshelf Podcast. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Mina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. I have a question for you all today. Where is the first place you want to go the next time or the first time that you visit Korea? Do you want to go to the brand new HYBE building, home of groups such as BTS, TXT, and Seventeen? Or maybe a historic castle is on your list so you can pretend you are a chosen era royal. Maybe you are looking forward to taking the train to Busan and secretly hoping some zombies will be among your fellow passengers. Because if you're a fan of Korean popular culture, yes, you probably will go visit the usual tourist attractions, but chances are you're also going to incorporate the thing that you are a diehard fan of into your travels in Korea. The book that we are taking down from the bookshelf today is Pop City, Korean Popular Culture and the Selling of Place by Yoo Jong-oh. Yoo Jong-oh is a professor who teaches at the University of Texas Austin here in the U.S. The book explores how the Hallyu wave led to the commodification of Korea and certain cities and regions within it as something to be bought by culture tourists. Although the book was written fairly recently, published just in 2018, it includes some research done years before that. Because the research was done quite a few years ago now, and because of the recent explosion of the popularity of K-pop globally, there are some aspects of the book that are already slightly out of date or currently still evolving, and we'll discuss more about this later in the episode. The first part of the book covers a lot of aspects of drama production, including the relationships between municipalities and drama production companies. In the second part of the book, Professor Oh discusses the use of idols to make a place seem worth going to, especially for foreigners. I got this book a few years ago, but it's different to read after the pandemic when it's not as easy to go abroad unless you are able to do the mandatory quarantine that's required in Korea. I'm grateful to have had the chance to visit Korea before the pandemic. If you listen to the trailer for the second season, I talk about the Hallyu Wave and what it is. But if you haven't listened, the Hallyu Wave refers to the overseas popularity of Korean entertainment in the 2000s. It includes everything from K-dramas, K-pop music, Korean food, K-beauty, and more. According to this book, there were actually two Hallyu Waves. The first one, which took place from 2003 to 2011, and that was driven more so by K-drama, and the second one, which started in 2011, driven more by the popularity of K-pop music. This book, Pop City, states that Hallyu, meaning Korean wave, was a term first created in the 1990s in Chinese-speaking areas, despite the fact that we really start to talk about the Hallyu wave as being in the time frame of the early 2000s. I want to dive more into the concept of selling of place, as described in the book. Please correct me, by the way, if you ever think I have missed anything or misunderstood anything. We discussed in prior episodes that Korea was previously an agrarian country, but that changed after multiple wars and colonizations that resulted in general upheaval. The national government took control of their economy by swiftly industrializing and focusing on turning Korea into a major exporter. Then, as you recall, in 1997, Korea faced the IMF crisis. Generally, local governments do need to have development projects such as malls, aquariums, and cultural places in order to attract private investment. And this was also true for Korea, especially during and after the financial crisis. These developments would attract tourism and promote business among local residents as well. Once the first Hallyu wave started in the early 2000s, local governments realized they could leverage the interest in K-dramas and drum up interest in tourism to their towns. It was basically a way to market a place and sell it like a product unto itself. 
Prior to the Hallyu wave, I'm not so sure that Korea was a major tourist destination for people, especially for international travelers. Wikipedia says that nearly 5 million international visitors visited Korea in 2003. In 2019, that number was more than 17 million. Why would people want to visit a place from a pop culture perspective. Professor O oh writes, quote, sites represented in or linked to popular culture have become fantasy places that audience tourists aspire to visit, and such desires have actually been materialized through a boom in culture-driven tourism. Even if you've never been there, you probably have some certain idea of Korea in your head as a result of watching dramas or experiencing Korea through other various mediums like music or food. And if you finally get a chance to go to Korea, you probably are going to specifically seek the Korea that you have in your mind. You want to pursue this version of Korea most of all. The Korea that lives in your mind might end up being somewhat different than the Korea that people who live there experience every day but you at least hope that you'll find some evidence of that Korea that you always imagined. As a result of consuming media, fans form an emotional idea of a place based on a storyline or an idol that they like. Professor O oh writes, quote, Tourist destinations are not necessarily the sites with pre-existing historical, cultural, or natural resources. They can be created by giving cities a new image. Television dramas and K-pop music can instantly provide entirely new images to certain places through their stories and characters, regardless of the area's pre-existing identities, end quote. When I was planning my Korea trip, I looked through lists of guided tours and bus tours, many of which revolved around K-pop and K-drama. You could take tours based on themes such as the boy group BTS, where the tour would take you to filming locations for their music videos and the restaurant they always used to eat at as trainees. You could board a bus to travel to the beach where the couple from the drama Goblin stood, and maybe Gongyu would show up? No, just kidding. The, the tours don't promise that. Places like the restaurant and the beach were there for some time, but they didn't become destinations for tourists until BTS and Goblin became uber popular. There are always inherent risks in investing so much money in the popularity of something like pop culture, which follows ever-changing trends. Professor O oh goes into how these investments by the cities were highly speculative investments. According to Business Insider, quote, speculation is the act of buying or selling assets that have an increased chance of significant losses. As speculative investors take on more risk, there's an expectation to achieve extraordinary returns, which in the mind of the speculators is compensation for the outsized risk, end quote. So in other words, a local government that decides to capitalize on a viral drama, for example, may be taking on a very risky investment, but that may turn out to be worth it if the show becomes super popular and it starts a tourism boom by fans of the show. Professor O oh writes, quote, that is, nobody knows whether a play, show, song, and so forth will be a hit or not. Therefore, it is never clear whether the play selling packaged within particular entertainment content will be successful or not, end quote. So Professor O goes way more into the financial and economic stuff behind all of this, but I'm glossing over it for the purposes of this episode. Geography also plays an important part with regards to fandom trips to Korea due to the uneven development that occurred there after the war. You know Seoul is the capital of South Korea, but it also is the center of so many other important things in Korea, including 55% of manufacturing firms, 66% of universities offering four-year degrees, and 73% of research and development institutions. Those statistics, by the way, come from the book. So a lot of post-war development in Korea took place in Seoul, whereas other parts of Korea were relatively not as well developed in the immediate aftermath of the war. 
But that is actually beneficial for some drama production companies. A lot of dramas are filmed in what Professor O calls regional cities, which she says, quote, refers to a small, local, peripheral, and marginalized city, county, or district shaped by South Korea's uneven development trajectories of the post-Korean War era, end quote. Basically, regional cities do not have as many amenities and attractions as a place as well-developed as Seoul and therefore can't really get a lot of investment in their town. But regional cities can be attractive to drama production crews because of the available land on which to build sets or for the natural beauty already existing there, which can make for beautiful scenery. And the drama can help the regional cities by incorporating the city and its attraction into the drama and evoking these emotional feelings, which would then potentially draw more tourism to that regional city. So that's the reason why a municipality or a regional city might decide to invest in a drama. In order to find out about K-drama production in Korea, Professor Oh conducted fieldwork research in the K-drama industry between the years 2011 and 2014. This wasn't actually very easy for her. She had no personal connections to the industry, and she was seen by the drama production companies as an outsider. Many individuals associated with the drama industry were hesitant to share financial information with her, such as the amount of money they might receive from a local government. Representatives of the cities, however, were more willing to talk to Professor Oh as they saw her as someone who might be able to promote their city's brand, as opposed to someone trying to scoop industry secrets. Even still, they also wouldn't share the exact amounts of money that they had used to sponsor dramas in their area. Before I go further into the aspects of drama production itself, I first need to talk about a specific drama. The popularity of the 2002 Korean drama Winter Sonata is noted in the book, as well as in many other sources, as being the start of the Hallyu wave. It generated a high interest in Korean dramas outside of Korea. The show aired in Korea in 2002 and aired in Japan in 2003 on NHK, the station that imported the series from Korea. Although this was not the first drama to become popular outside of Korea, it was exceedingly popular and led to a real surge of interest in Korean dramas by people living in countries outside of Korea. The first drama that received interest abroad, according to this book, was 1991's What is Love All About, which was popular in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and China. But Winter Sonata was a game changer for the Korean drama industry. Winter Sonata was filmed in a place just out of Seoul called Chunton, with particularly famous scenes between the lead characters occurring in a very scenic area with a lot of snowy landscapes, as the title of the drama may suggest. The characters return again and again to this place, which becomes an emotionally significant place for them. So this, plus the natural beauty of the location, makes it a desirable place to visit among fans of this now 20-year-old drama. There are even statues of the main characters from Winter Sonata that were erected in the filming location in Chuncheon. You can search for vlogs by people who visited there, including some which were filmed fairly recently. The actor who played the male lead is named Pe Yongjun. He became such a big deal in Japan that he was referred to there as Yon Sama. Sama, if you don't know, is a high honorific suffix in Japanese. Professor O oh writes, quote, beyond mere television watching, Winter Sonata became a social phenomenon, causing enormous changes in cultural, economic, and political arenas in both Korea and Japan. This drama was especially popular among the middle-aged Japanese women. It was popular among teenagers and other people as well, and the popularity of the drama in Japan prompted Japanese television to rerun the series early the next year. There's an article in the International Communication Gazette written by researchers who interviewed and surveyed Japanese fans of Winter Sonata. 
what they found was pretty interesting. Some middle-aged Japanese women felt a certain type of nostalgia when watching this drama. And also, according to the research done, the perception of Korea was enhanced in a positive manner in the eyes of the Japanese fans of this drama. That's pretty notable considering that Japan and Korea have not historically always had the greatest relationship with each other. Interestingly, the positive view of Koreans that some viewers received while watching the drama did not extend to North Korea or North Koreans, which the Japanese still perceived as threats. So it only applied to South Korea. Fans of Winter Sonata reported that they started incorporating Korean foods into their diets. They started watching more Korean television and listening to Korean music. It inspired them to learn Korean language in some cases. And of course, it sparked a lot of travel. Middle-aged Japanese women would travel to Korea, sometimes through tour packages that were Winter Sonata themed. After I came back from visiting Korea, I actually spoke to an acquaintance of mine who was born and raised in Japan. And I told her that, you know, I noticed a lot of middle-aged Japanese women. They're not, they're not really what I thought would be big K-pop fans, but they were in all these K-pop attractions in Seoul. And my Japanese acquaintance mentioned that in the early 2000s, there was a phenomenon of Japanese housewives who suddenly got swept up in Korean dramas. And her theory, which, by the way, may not be accurate at all, this is just her opinion, not like official research or anything. Her opinion was that some of these housewives were bored with their normal duties at home and with their jobs, and K-dramas offered an escape for them. An article reflecting on the 10th anniversary of the drama Winter Sonata stated, quote, The show's popularity in Japan was surprising to many, including the producer, Yoon Soko, and then-Japanese Prime Minister, Koizumi Junichiro, who in 2004 famously said, Pei Yongjun is more popular than I am in Japan, end quote. Apologies to the former Prime Minister if I messed up your name. In terms of selling of a place, this show was such an unprecedented and unpredicted hit that it made the speculative investment in K-pop and K-drama more attractive for a lot of smaller municipalities. So Professor O writes, quote, sales of the DVD of the series amounted to more than 450,000 copies in Japan, while more than 60,000 copies were sold of the Winter Sonata tourism DVDs that covered the locations used in filming the drama, end quote. So in Japan only, the DVD sales were almost half a million. And it wasn't only popular in Japan. That was just probably the place it was the most popular. And like I mentioned, this drama aired on Japanese television as well. So it's not as if you had to watch it on DVD if you lived in Japan. It aired twice. It was in reruns at one point. And the DVD set of just the tourism video also sold so many copies. Domestically, Professor Oh says, quote, earnings from the drama series in Korea exceeded $5 billion, mainly generated by the drama-driven tourism to the filming sites, end quote. Yes, I said dollars, $5 billion, or rather, Professor Oh said that. I'd heard about the drama Winter Sonata for years, and after reading this book, I went out and bought the DVD set so I could watch it. It was pretty good, but I don't think it just hit me the same way it hit those Japanese women in the early 2000s. It just hit a nerve for some people. Japan wasn't the only country who consumed a lot of Hallyu content. Another highly popular K-drama from around the same time was Jewel in the Palace, or Zhejanggum in Korean, which first aired in 2003, one year after Winter Sonata. This one was a historical drama which was imported by Taiwan in 2004 and subsequently gained high popularity in Hong Kong and China. 
Professor O oh writes, quote, Since its extraordinary success in East Asia, Taejanggum has made inroads into Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and Latin America. It has been exported to more than 60 countries, driving the Korean wave across the globe, end quote. Professor O oh discussed some aspects of drama production that explains why they were so desperate for investments from local municipalities. An aspect of drama filming I didn't know about prior to reading this book was live filming. Professor O oh discussed the process of live filming, which is filming very close to the broadcast time, sometimes on the same day, sometimes within the same hour that the drama will air. I'm not sure how frequently it happens still now, but at the time of her research, scripts would be edited all the way to the last minute of a drama airing, which sometimes led to very hasty editing, and it could cause the quality of the drama and the plot lines to suffer, or sometimes for whole endings to be botched. She mentions the 2011 drama Sign, where due to super last minute filming and very rushed editing, there was no sound for the last 20 minutes of the broadcast. There's even something called choktebon, which means a slice of script. This method caused actors to film partial one-scene scripts without the whole plot being fully fleshed out yet by the writers, which probably makes it kind of hard to act out. These slices would later get edited together to form a full episode. And the point of doing this was to be able to quickly respond to the audience reaction and rewrite the script so that the changes could be made almost in real time. They really needed that full emotional investment from the audience that drama such as Winter Sonata had. In those instances, though, creative control was basically just handed over to the audience in an effort to maintain ratings. And so a drama production had to be malleable enough to change plot lines or to add or remove characters, depending on the audience's reactions. And it just goes to show the lengths a drama production would go through to try and score a major viral hit. Along with live filming, drama productions try to save money by maintaining super tight filming schedules. A negative impact of such rush production practices, however, was that the actors and staff could become injured on set. That in and of itself was bad enough, but it could also delay the whole production and even the broadcast of an episode. Professor O oh writes, quote, given that crew and supporting actors are paid by the day, the best way to cut the actual production cost is to reduce the number of filming days, end quote. All of these tight deadlines can also lead to labor exploitation, which Professor O oh goes into in the book and reminds me somewhat of what we heard of idle trainees going through in the Jessica Jung Shine episode I made. Not only were drama production teams trying to create the next big thing, like Winter Sonata, when they were trying to cater to audiences, but also anytime dramas didn't cater to the audiences to this extent, according to Professor O, oh, they would inevitably have bad ratings. So with all of this talk about K-dramas, is anyone craving a Subway sandwich right now? Although the next thing I'm going to talk about is not strictly the selling of place, I found this part really interesting, especially considering how many people asked me if I ate at a Subway restaurant while in Korea. By the way, this is not an ad. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is a reference to how many K-drama scenes take place at a Subway franchise where the characters are, for some reason, suddenly having a romantic, I guess, date at the well-known fast food franchise. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the term PPL, which is what the K-drama industry calls product placement. Along with funding from local municipalities, writers often have to work PPL into their drama. Sponsors pay the drama production team for promoting their products within the show. You see PPL both within the drama itself and when sponsors are listed at the end credits when various company logos appear. Actually, from the year 2000 to the year 2010, Korean shows legally weren't allowed to show brand names other than during those end credits. In 2010, legislation changed so that corporate logos for sponsoring brands could be shown on television programs. 
As those of us who watch K-dramas know, sometimes the way in which the brand product is incorporated in the storyline is really convoluted or awkward because the writers have to find a way to get the characters to use or show that specific product. And sometimes it's just like, doesn't really work out well. Professor O oh has a fascinating section of the book devoted to the popular 2010 drama Secret Garden because of the way that show used PPL. Not to give everything away, I will just share a tiny bit of what she said about it. And by the way, if you do buy or read this book, she is going to include spoilers about the dramas she mentions. I will be avoiding spoilers for this episode, however. According to the industry insiders Professor O oh spoke with, Secret Garden was known for, quote, its savvy integration of product placement into its stories, end quote. Basically, the way PPL was integrated into the drama really made sense for the characters and for the storyline. She says that the production team had publicly stated that they wrote those storylines in such a way as to take into account PPL from the early stages of conceptualizing the drama. So this isn't really a spoiler, but the job that the female lead has is one that requires her to wear a lot of outdoor and sporty clothing. So the production team had the sponsorship of an outdoor clothing company, and I'm just refraining from mentioning companies as much as I can, but you can see their PPL clearly in the drama. Because it makes sense for her character to wear this type of clothing, she and another character go shopping in one of the clothing company stores. And while they're shopping, the logo is just very visible behind them or somewhere near them in the store during that scene. Another thing they did was with the male character who suffered from claustrophobia. Because of his condition, he drives a luxury vehicle that is also a convertible. I'm not mentioning the car company, but this was PPL. Because of the brand of the car is known to be a luxury brand, Professor O oh says this type of PPL, quote, produces a far greater effect than conventional advertising, which simply provides consumers with information about the product because it generates powerful, effective values around the insert luxury car brand name here, end quote. In one of my previous episodes, I kind of flippantly said that every K-drama you've ever watched has a Chebog character. Chebogs are people who are the heirs to or the owners of huge business conglomerates in Korea. Professor O oh mentions that Chebal characters are needed to promote luxury brands who sponsor the dramas. This leads to a lot of dramas being Cinderella stories, where a regular person has to interact with a rich and glamorous Chebal. And this made so much sense to me when I read it. So that's why there are so many plot lines about Chebals. Again, although Japan wasn't the only country that was really interested in Korean culture, I do want to take a minute to talk about Japan again. Professor O oh notes that, quote, throughout the 2000s up until 2013, Japan was the biggest overseas buyer of Korean television dramas, end quote. Therefore, Japan is a particularly important part of the Hallyu wave, being that they were a huge chunk of the consumers of Hallyu early on. We already talked about Yon Sama, the honorific name for the actor Bae Yong Jun. There were other actors who also built up a popularity and a huge fan base in Japan, which could then be used by production companies to sell further dramas to the Japan market. Professor O oh mentions that the other reason Japanese markets were catered to so much by the drama industry was because of the long-term loyalty of Japanese fans. Professor O oh went on drama-themed tours as part of her field research led by tour guides who were giving the tour in the Japanese language. Professor O oh also visited Japan and found souvenir shops and cafes in a neighborhood called Shinukubo. I myself have also been to Shinukubo, which is a Koreatown area in Tokyo, Japan. When I went in 2018, there were so many places to get K-pop merch, Korean barbecue, and K-beauty supplies, which were right next to Japanese beauty supplies. 
There were even young idol trainees in Shinokubo who stood on the street corner dressed like idols handing out flyers. And I think those flyers were for you to come and watch them sing and dance at these small showcases. I'm not really sure because the kid I saw handing them out didn't give me one. Anyway, the book was written and I last visited Japan prior to the pandemic, so I'm not sure what the current situation is in Shinokubo. Japan has largely closed its borders since the pandemic, and it remains this way still during the time of this recording in early 2022. So for this reason, those of you who follow me on Instagram might have noticed that I've posted some pictures and reels from my travels, both to Shin Ukubo and Korea, just so you can get an idea of what that all looked like. Professor Oh writes, quote, more than $500 million worth of Korean drama was exported to overseas markets from 2002 to 2013, end quote. To me, $500 million was already such a staggering number, so I had to look up what amount of money the K-drama export industry was worth now, almost 10 years after the figure Professor O reported. I found a Bloomberg article which refers to something called the content industry, which includes K-drama and K-pop combined together. In the article, the 2020 annual export value of the content industry was $10.8 billion. The same article also cites Netflix as saying that Netflix's business alone added $1.9 billion to Korea's economy in 2020. So that gives you some sense of the worth that K-dramas and K-movies have. That same article went on to say, quote, the value of Korea's entertainment exports, which include publishing games, music, movies, and TV shows, rose 6.3% last year, even as overall shipments of goods fell 5.4% due to the pandemic, end quote. Unlike dramas, which were especially beneficial to regional cities, Professor Oh says that K-pop music pilgrimages are primarily concentrated in Seoul. The two neighborhoods she focuses on in the book are the neighborhoods of Gangnam, as in Gangnam style, and Myeongdong. As mentioned previously, Seoul already had a lot of development, and so they had a natural advantage when it came to attracting tourism and incorporating K-pop-related attractions. Investments for Seoul were therefore less speculative and less risky than for regional cities. We already discussed that Winter Sonata marked the beginning of the first Hallyu wave in 2003. The second Hallyu wave was marked from 2011, and particularly from the time point of the SM Town concert in Paris, which Professor O oh says was, quote, signifying the true globalization of K-pop beyond Asia, end quote. And just a quick reminder that SM Entertainment is a K-pop agency in Korea. Professor Oh also says that municipalities shifted during this time from using dramas to promote their place to using K-pop music stars. So we already know that dramas evoke all this emotion in the viewer, and these emotions can pull the viewer to really want to visit Korea and find that Korea in their mind. Similarly, Professor Oh writes, quote, through their visual allure and intimacy building skills, idols forge effective relations with their fans slash audiences, prompting the latter to consume products and visit places that feature them. Korean municipalities wish to use this effective power to turn sites associated with idols into memorable experiences for fans, end quote. Dr. Oh focuses her writing and research into the idols and images themselves as opposed to the actual music they make. Professor Oh writes, quote, Gangnam and Myeongdong capitalize on the clustering of entertainment agencies and retail stores in their areas and conveniently promote K-pop images to bring in global K-pop fans, end quote. Professor Oh asserts that K-pop idols are essentially manufactured as products themselves, and they sell themselves using their striking visuals. If you have a difficult time reading about body image, including dieting and cosmetics and things like that, just be aware that this book, Pop City, does talk about those topics at length, and I may have to go into a little bit of that as well. Let's talk about Gangnam. 
Professor Oh writes about how Gangnam developed over time to become an affluent area and how Gangnam used idols to promote the neighborhood. She says Gangnam sort of self-declared itself and tried to make itself a global destination using Hallyu stars who were popular at the time to do so. She adds that international fans were flocking to Gangnam anyway, specifically to the headquarters of entertainment companies. She says, quote, the fan tourists were not engaging in typical tourist activities such as sightseeing. Rather, they were waiting around probably in hopes of spotting their idols, end quote. Later, she writes, quote, Every time a car stopped outside, all heads swiveled in hopes of spotting one of the label stars on their way to the dance rehearsal rooms or voice training studios upstairs, end quote. Later, in regards to international fans traveling to Korea to attend a K-pop concert, she writes, quote, The idol's physical presence assures fans that it is not a fantasy. These are real human beings in whom they have invested emotional and material resources. Once they have felt the thrills, the overseas fans say they want more of the same and cannot stop actually visiting Korea or wishing to go there again. That is why tourists driven by pop music are loyal and frequent visitors, end quote. Yeah, that part was really relatable. I really like Professor O's comparisons of K-drama fans' tourist tendencies versus K-pop fans' tourist tendencies. She talks quite a bit about this, including this part. Quote, compared with drama tourism, in which one-off visitors comprise the majority, K-pop tourism is geared toward repeated visits. Although the same groups and singers perform, every single concert is a composition with different content and a different plot. In addition, K-pop groups often come back with a new album slash single and a different concept, different outfits and hairstyles, and different dances. Enthusiastic fans keep coming back too, so long as their interest is maintained, end quote. As part of her research in Gangnam, Professor Oh visits the SM Town Artium in Coex, which has since closed. This was a multi-floor building where you could buy $8 cupcakes, $9 when I was there, with the name of your favorite idol or themed after your favorite group, buy merchandise that was themed after groups and idols, and even record in a recording studio that was used by SM Entertainment artists at one point. When I was there, there was an SM museum with rooms that looked like famous music video sets of SM artists and contained the outfits worn by the actual artists in the videos, among other things. There was even a theater where you could watch hologram concert performances and musicals starring some of the SM idols as the characters. You could take special photos where hologram images of your faves appear next to you in the final image. This was SM's and the other entertainment companies who had similar offerings way of getting fans to visit them and spend even more money in the name of fandom. Even though the idol themselves aren't there, just being surrounded by all their branded stuff or their costumes or the idea of them, or just knowing you're in the same building that they've been in or might come walking through at any moment is what translates into actual real life profits for these companies. It's sort of similar as the Cape drama fans who come to Korea seeking out that imagined version of Korea they saw in the drama. By the way, personally, I do draw the line at $9 cupcakes. That's not even something you can keep forever like merch. But uh, yeah, no judgment if you paid for a $9 cupcake. I, I really kind of wanted to too. Also, as part of her field research, Professor Oh visited K-Star Road in Gangnam. She describes it as a, quote, government-initiated urban district branding project featuring K-pop stars, end quote. So this is just a stretch of road in Gangnam near entertainment company buildings. And the point of it was for visitors to learn the story of Hallyu as they walked down the street. And they could also visit restaurants and shops that were frequented by idols or featured in K-dramas. A lot of idols' family members, like their siblings or parents, owned eating establishments, coffee shops, things like that. So you could go visit them and meet your idol's dad or something. And there were also special fan-themed photo zones where you could take pictures with cardboard cutouts of your idols. 
almost like the real thing. One of the features of K-Star Road that I just happened to walk by when I visited there and that Professor O mentions are the Kangnam dolls. This is a combination word comprised of the word Kangnam and idol. These are bear-shaped, quote, art toys, end quote, each representing a famous group of the time. The ones I saw for myself were Block B, Super Junior, TVXQ, Shiny, BTS, and EXO. But according to the book, there were, or maybe still are, even more than the ones that I happened to see. Professor O oh cites the Kangnam dolls as an example of idol-based marketing, which really only works through the proximity of the agencies. I mean, you're on your way to hang out at Cube Entertainment or wherever anyway, so it's kind of exciting to see the Kangnam doll for Cube artists. She writes, quote, For easy access to their workplaces, many celebrities actually live nearby. Kangnam, therefore, is where K-pop stars work, rest, and live their lives, which makes it a fantasy land for fans where the chances of seeing idols are much higher than elsewhere, end quote. But just because they use idols to advertise a place or just because there's a possibility that a very sleepy idol might walk past you doesn't mean that a place is necessarily worth visiting. After all, hanging around the companies or your idol's favorite curry spot or wherever does not guarantee that you'll actually lay eyes on your idol. And side note, I would not go out of my way to visit those Kangnam dolls. I myself didn't even actually go looking for them. I just happened upon them. Since I found them, I took photos. But like Professor O mentioned, they don't deliver much just by themselves. And by the time I got to see them, they already seemed a little bit dated, with newer groups not represented at all, and the BTS Kangnam doll, for example, bearing the old BTS logo. This is another example of how risky it can be to try and keep up to the ever-changing tastes of Hallyu. Professor Oh talks about the use of celebrities, and in particular idols, in the Korean advertising industry. Quote, idols have risen to become a desirable commercial model because of their sizable fandoms as well, which have been growing even greater with the globalization of K-pop fans, end quote. It's a good strategy, considering that BTS member Jungkook once innocuously mentioned the exact brand of fabric softener he likes to use, which caused that type of fabric softener to sell out pretty much right away, much to his chagrin. Okay, so let's talk about Myeongdong. The neighborhood of Myeongdong, Professor Oh writes, is one of the biggest commercial districts in Korea. The neighborhood is filled with the images of many idols in the form of ads and is filled with foreign tourists. There is so much shopping one can accomplish in Myeongdong. Professor Oh says, quote, The most sophisticated consumption is no longer associated with Myeongdong. It has moved to Gangnam, and Myeongdong has been demoted to an area of mass consumption, end quote. For sure, you can buy a lot of fast fashion in Myeongdong. At the time that I went, you could easily find so many cheap clothes that were like knockoffs of that street style fashion that idols like to wear at the time. Professor Oh highlights all of the K-beauty stores that can be found in Myeongdong. Stores such as Misha, The Face Shop, Nature Republic, Innisfree, Tony Moly, and Etude House are all easy to find in Myeongdong. This is not an ad or endorsement of any of those brands, by the way. So if you're a fan of K-beauty, you probably already know that Myeongdong is known as Cosmetic Road. Myeongdong caters to foreign tourists by calling out greetings in various languages, including Japanese, Chinese, and English. And so many places give out free samples or have amazing deals to get you to shop there. K-beauty is part of Hallyu as well. And as we said, idols are a big part of the advertising industry in Korea. So you will see tons of images of idols endorsing various skincare or beauty products. Fans of idols who want to look like them or just use a product that their idol uses are drawn to these stores by those images. You can even get limited edition photo cards with your beauty products. And some people really only even buy the product in order to obtain the photo card. They don't even want the cream or whatever that comes with it. They just want a little cardboard photo of their idol. 
Foreign customers are the best because they will not hesitate to buy in bulk. Professor O notes Chinese and Japanese tourists will buy 500 individually wrapped mass packs and have no qualms about it. Uh, I myself might have bought 100 mask packs in just one transaction when I was in Myeongdong. They make it really easy to do that. I said earlier that some of this information is already evolving. Those of you who have visited Seoul or researched visiting Seoul may be aware that some K-pop agencies have changed their location from Gangnam to other places. JYP Entertainment moved from Gangnam to Gangdong area of Seoul. Big Hit Entertainment used to have a building in Gangnam, but you can find them now under their new name, Hybe, and their new building in Yongsan. SM Entertainment has some buildings in Gangnam, but the SM Tankoek's Artium closed, and there are plans for a new fan-based SM Entertainment space in Changwon, which is outside of Seoul altogether. So, Gangnam is already starting to lose some of its K-pop and Hallyu associations by virtue of these companies leaving the area. Myeongdong, similarly, and quite sadly, may not be the Hallyu hotspot it once was either. Due to the pandemic, this area of Seoul, which catered so much to foreign tourists before, has faced a lot of store closings and financial hardships since tourism obviously fell quite a bit during the pandemic. I have seen more than one person giving a live tour of Myeongdong on social media, showing how desolate and empty it is without tourists, since actual Seoulites used to mainly avoid this area, kind of like how New Yorkers will avoid Times Square due to its abundance of tourists. And what will the future be of the selling of place? Well, the extraordinary circumstances of the pandemic may give us a clue. Since Korea relies so much on the worldwide embracing of Hallyu, we have seen a new type of selling of place, the virtual place. So none of this is, of course, in Professor O's book, because this is sort of pandemic related, but I just really wanted to talk about it. In April 2020, SM Entertainment worked with the company Naver to create a platform called Beyond Live, an online concert platform with the capability to stream a concert all over the world. That was really important in a time of extreme social distancing and trying not to catch a deadly disease. Since then, online concerts and fan meets, as well as video call fan signs, have become the norm. If you can't go to Korea, the K-pop industry seems ready to bring Korea to you, or at least Korean idols to your laptops and phones. Now, years into the pandemic, we are also seeing the movement towards the virtual world with K-pop avatars, such as the one used for the girl group Espa. Several companies, including most recently as of this recording, YG Entertainment, are investing in NFT technology. Companies are also finding ways to use the metaverse, artificial intelligence, and virtual reality to help you interact with your favorite idols. Now look, I have zero insider knowledge about any of this. I barely even know what most of these terms mean, but for a while now I've been wondering, Will I one day be able to get a fan sign in the form of an NFT after attending a Metaverse concert performed by AI or avatar versions of my idols? Professor O noted, idols need to be beautiful, and being human kind of puts a time limit and health limit on that. SM Entertainment's Isuman really seems to be going all out with the Metaverse and Kwangya and avatars and all his SM Cultural Universe stuff. Neocultural technology, anyone? One article by Tamar Herman, written in November 2021, mentions that companies are indeed planning to use NFTs to capitalize on your need to get closer to your idol. Tamar writes, quote, Just as K-pop album sales often lead to access to fan signs in which small groups of fans meet their idols and ask them questions, labels are preparing to market NFTs as a means for fans to interact with their favorite stars, end quote. Now, this is absolutely not advice for me to you for you to go buy cryptocurrency or buy anything in NFT form or do anything like that with your money. But I just wanted to bring this up so that we're all aware of what direction this is going in potentially. 
Tamar Herman's article also says that there already are K-pop NFTs that people can buy. If you want to read about it, her article will be linked in my blog. But again, I'm not encouraging this. Just, you know, be smart with your money, please. According to Professor Oh, in a way, the K-pop industry has kind of been doing this the whole time by selling merch and the selling of place. She writes, quote, the profit-generating schemes demonstrate how cultivated idol images sell other products. The visually highlighted idol images are a meta-commodity to sell other products, including music, celebrity merchandise, and K-pop places as pseudo-avatars of K-pop idols, end quote. Wow, that was very prescient, Professor Oh. There was so much more in this book that I didn't even go over in the interest of time, but if you liked what you heard today and you are interested in the type of research Professor O did or how Hallyu was marketed for tourism purposes, definitely I do recommend this book. It is a little bit academic, but it's also interesting to read. We'll be covering some more about the Hallyu Wave in other episodes this season, so make sure you don't miss out on those. Special thanks to Rue for technical support, and special thanks to AO for designing the blog. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about this podcast. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.